2: I don't mean to like be a bummer, like thinking about these kind of like very not ideal situations and how I would pay for them, but it's just, I'm at this point now, what ways are the smartest to spend my money to take care of myself, essentially.
0: Hello, and welcome to Financials Podcast, Future Rich. I'm your host, Barbara Ginty, and I'm also a CFP, which is a certified financial planner. And I am here with my guest today, Nora. Hi, Nora. Hi, Barbara. How are you?
2: Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, thanks for coming on. I'm excited about this episode. As you all know, I love a good spreadsheet, so I have quite the outline for this episode. So I'm excited to go through everything. Awesome. I'm
2: excited to start.
0: All right, so do you want to give us your age, relationship, income, like all that jazz?
2: Sure, yeah. I'm 34 years old. I live with my long-term boyfriend um, in a house that we own together. My income is about $83,500 a year, and I work... As a software administrator. Very nice. And you are from Eastern Pennsylvania? Correct.
0: Yep. Amazing. And the one thing I will say, we'll just start off with this, is you own your house together and you already have it paid off,
2: I noticed. Yeah, that was like super important to, well, primarily me. And then he kind of went along with my idea of paying off early. We had a very small mortgage in the first place, and then it just kind of became a discussion of like, well, what if we just keep paying it off at the same rate as if we were saving for the down payment in the first place? And that led us to paying it off in like five years. And this was like in 2017 before the crazy housing market fluctuations. I was going to ask. Okay.
0: So you got, you got in dumb luck. Well, no, like sometimes you just get lucky. So you, but you weren't prepared to buy a house then. So that wasn't luck, right? Yeah. So that's fantastic. Okay. Wow. So you got it paid off in October of 2021. So you are totally debt-free, I believe, right? I am. Yes. Yeah, that's in- incredible at 34 to own your own home and be debt-free. So let's start with that. That's fantastic. Let's go through. So your salary is a little over 83000 I like that you noticed this. So when I look through your overview, you get paid every two weeks, which works out to be actually 26 pay periods versus a lot of people who get paid the 1st and the 15th or the 15th and the 30th, it's only 24 pay periods. So what we like to say is you have like an extra two paychecks if you you know budget using the 24 so every pay cycle, you have $2,134 being deposited. Right. Perfect. Okay. And then let's talk about your expenses. So you have really low expenses because you don't have, and I guess this is one thing I want ask. In your light items of expenses, I have food, gas, car savings, utilities, cell phone, electric, car insurance, and then your hobby. Do you also have homeowners insurance and taxes?
2: Yeah, we do. So that's actually one of the things that I budget for with one of my extra paychecks, and I split it with my boyfriend. Got it. Okay, perfect. So we just kind of like lump... Lump that together. Like a, like a large budget amount into our shared checking account, and then we kind of like dole those out as our taxes are due, as our homeowners' insurances do.
0: Perfect. Okay, because yeah, the way you've budgeted is you live on 24 paychecks, so you have two extra, which works out to be roughly 4,200. So the homeowners
2: and the taxes comes out of that then. Actually, I'm sorry, I misspoke. I get like a work bonus of about like three thousand plus or minus a year. Oh, okay. And I just kind of like mentally write that off to my housing expenses. Perfect. Okay. And then I ask my boyfriend to match that and then that goes toward our housing stuff.
0: Got it. Okay. So we don't have to worry about it. So what you get deposited, we just use for your hobby, car insurance. So we'll go through it. So hobby is four eighty, car insurance is fifty, electric is one ten, cell phone is thirty-five. Utilities are 85 car savings because you currently don't have a car payment, you anticipate you will have one in the future. Is 300 gas is 150 and then food is 200. Yep, that's right. So it works out to be a little over 1400 a month. And so that is your expenses uh, monthly. Yes, perfect. And so with your company, you are contributing 6% to a 401k and you get a 5% match. I do, yes. Yeah. So I wanted to make sure I was at least doing the match right away. Yeah, absolutely. So then 11% is going into your work
2: 401k. Uh, yeah. And then do you also get health insurance through them? I do, yes. And that's taken out of my paycheck. So when I mentioned that net amount, that 2134, that was post after that health insurance. Yep. Yeah. Perfect. Okay.
0: So you have quite a bit left over monthly because your expenses are really low, especially given that your work bonus, and we'll just say that having the 26 pay periods and the work bonus covers any sort of taxes or... You know the homeowners, so you have
2: quite a bit left over monthly. Yeah, and I guess that's part of why I was interested in reaching out. I know that investing and getting serious about that is kind of my next step, and it's a little more complicated than just pay off this debt, pay
0: off that debt. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, because you're trying to plan your life here. Okay, so let's. So you've done. So we have no debt. The house is paid. So you really have very minimal living expenses. You have very low budget. Like I might need some tips on how you only spend two hundred on food a month. I think, I don't know. My fiance eats too much, I've decided. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you've done a great job. Your emergency fund, you have sixteen thousand in. You have a high yield savings account with your boyfriend that had forty thousand in there. Is that correct?
2: Yes.
0: And then you have um ten thousand in the I bonds. The i bonds were super popular last year because their interest rate, because they're based on inflation went super high. Just to give you a little warning, it can be a little bit of a tug of war with the government to get your money back. Oh really? Yeah, they're not the easiest to deal with, um, and you do want to keep it, I believe you lose interest if you pull it out before five years. I have to double check that. I can double check that for you. So they're meant to be held a bit longer, but just in your mind, know when you go to take it out. If you can always take it out, you would just lose the last three months of interest and just be prepared for a bit of a struggle with them. Obviously, you you signed up for it and did it on their website, which is like probably one of the worst websites I've ever seen. It was pretty bad, yeah. United States, you would be like, you guys can't put together a better website. You can't like hire Google or something to help you with this. So it's just going to be as painful as it was setting it up to get the money back. Okay, You'll get it back. But the feedback I've gotten from people was like, oh my gosh, if I had known. So some people did it where they were like, oh, I'm just going to do it for 15 months. So I get just 12 months of interest and then get it back. And I think some people were a bit frustrated with like how much time they had to spend. You obviously have an emergency fund. You also have a high yield savings account. So I would go to the I-bonds last just prepare yourself that it's not going to be a straightforward, seamless process. Okay. I'll keep it in mind. Definitely. Not to like rag on the government, but they really can do a better job. I'm not exactly sure why their websites are so bad, but that one's particularly bad. And we'll talk about social security in the future as well. But social security is also like just got to be prepared for a battle. Like, you just got to be ready to wait and waste a lot of time. But so, okay, so you have all those savings, and then you've done a really great job with your retirement. So you have two former 401ks, one that's $71,000 and change, and one that's $52,000 and change. And then your current job, which is where you're, you're contributing 6%, getting a 5% match, um, that's just under 5000 So you have
2: about 128000 already saved for retirement, which is great. Yeah, I'm actually worried, you know, because I haven't really, I've like lightly researched it. There's a bunch of, I don't know, like I call rhetoric out there like, oh, you should have twice your salary saved by this age, three times your salary saved by that age. And the one thing that makes me a little anxious is that I've concentrated so much on my debt that I almost feel a little light on my investments right now. And I'm not even sure if that's true or if I'm worrying that it's light and that's not really the case. I don't know. I'm not sure. So I think
0: the one thing that's hard about personal finance is it is very specific to the individual. And so I really think all of those benchmarks are kind of fun. You really shouldn't be ranking yourself against anybody else but yourself because I haven't seen someone with food at 200 a month in a long time. So it's all about your own expenses and what you've, if what you've saved will sustain what you are desiring. Yeah, totally. There is no right or wrong because like, I've seen people, and I've, I've said this to people before, it's not as much about how much you have saved. It's really more about your budget. Because I've had people who've come into my office who have had millions of dollars saved, but that's not going to sustain their budget because their budget's really, really high and they don't want to change their lifestyle. So the money they've saved will not support their lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And I've seen other people who come in and there's plenty of people would say, well, that's not enough money to retire. It will 100% sustain their lifestyle. They are more than comfortable on that. Your lifestyle and your spending, everyone hates the word budget, but what you spend monthly and if that is a comfortable lifestyle for you really should dictate how much you're going to have saved. If you're comfortable in your house and you're comfortable with your current budget, I mean, you're living on 1400 a month, right? That's a really low budget. And if you're comfortable in doing everything you want to do, maybe we need a little bit more wiggle room. Right. Mm-hmm. You're not going to need as much as somebody who's living on 4000 a month right? I mean, just the math, right? You don't need as much to sustain yourself as somebody else does. So I wouldn't get too stressed out about those benchmarks. They're there because everybody wants a benchmark, right? Everybody wants something to strive for, but it's really more about what is your lifestyle going to look like and what are your goals and has your savings, is it help driving you towards sustaining that? And I would say yes, because now that you've paid off all the debt, a lot of people sometimes their just their rent is fifteen hundred a month. Just rent before they've eaten anything or paid a utility bill or left the apartment is fifteen hundred. So your entire cost for the month is fourteen hundred essentially. Right. So now you have all this money left over every month. So you could really, if you want to, ramp up your savings between now and forty. Well, and that's what I
2: feel like I kind of want to explore too. Like, I know that I'm in a good spot right now. You know, people use the phrase house poor. I don't want to make myself investing poor to miss out on like, you know, my 30s, my 40s, like really good decades of my life just to be like a miser. Yeah, no, totally. In investing. But I also acknowledge the fact that I'm used to living on a relatively small amount of money and still having funds. I want that to work for me. I want to take advantage of that too.
0: We could do one of two things. We could increase your 401k a little bit because that's. Gonna save you some taxes. Okay, I have a couple ideas. And now this is all gonna come down to personal preference. Does your 401k have a Roth option inside of it? It does. Okay, so that's one idea. Up your contribution to your 401k. And the only reason I'm saying because people like listen to this and be like, well, she could do a Roth outside of work. Yes, you can do a Roth outside of work. You can also put more in the Roth inside of work. It also eliminates you opening another account and having to manage something separately. If it's you're already in your 401k at work and they have a Roth option, it just, it's just much simpler in terms of paperwork that you just add the Roth option and then add money into that inside of your 401k. That's one option. Now, here's the deal. I am a big fan of the Roths. You go in after tax, it grows tax deferred, and when it comes out, it's totally tax-free. So I'm a big fan of them. really comes down to personal preference. As I said, there's really no right or wrong when it comes to your personal finance. With a few exceptions, the other option is if you don't want it to be retirement because you want it to be readily available to you. Should you say, "Oh, I want to take a big vacation" or "I want to have access to it," you could also just take money every month and save it in an investment account, which is your private money. You pay, you'll get a ten ninety nine every year and pay taxes on whatever the gains are. Ideally, there's gains last year. You would have had losses, and then that's readily available to you. It's your money. Let's just say we took two thousand, like twenty eight hundred over a month, but you did two thousand a month into an investment account. In a year, you'd have 24,000 in there. And if you did that for a couple of years or whatever your lifestyle allows for, you could get close to having 100,000 just in a non retirement account.
2: Yeah, that would be after like a little over four years. I would have 100K.
0: Yeah, depending on market performance. Like we don't know what the market's gonna do. Oh, of course, yeah. The market was down a lot last year. So if you look historically at the market, usually after it goes down, it usually goes back up. It's very rare we have two double down years. It's possible, but it's not as common. It's usually common to have one bad year and then the following year is a recovery year. Knowing that we had a really bad year last year, it's probably an opportunity to get in um, when we're not back at those high highs that we saw. So that's if there's no return you would get to that in four years. If you end up timing the market, you know, you get in and the next four years are great years in the market, you could get there sooner.
2: That part we don't know, right? Yeah, and like also, like I, I'm naturally a super risk averse person. So just opening myself up to investment possibilities right now and understanding the, you know, fluctuation of the market is just like, okay, I need to take these risks now. So it's kind of like a mental exercise for me to do that.
0: Yeah, and it's important to learn when you are investing
2: that your
0: account is going to go up and down. And that is normal. It's important to understand and know what you own, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I think where a lot of people get tripped up is they don't understand or know what they actually own. And you feel a lot more comfortable in my opinion, if you know what you own. So for instance, I'm just going to use name brands. If you, what kind of toothpaste do you use?
2: Uh, Colgate. Okay.
0: So every day you brush your teeth with Colgate, right? Yes. And you're going to buy, you bought Colgate all through the pandemic. Okay. So you never stop buying Colgate. No matter what happens, you still always buy Colgate because you're always going to brush your teeth every morning and every night. So if your account is invested in, we'll just say Colgate, part of it, not all of it, but part of it's invested in Colgate and the value goes down, but you go to the store every month and buy a tube of Colgate. I think you feel less nervous about owning it when you're continuing to use it. Okay. Does that make sense? Because you're like- Yes. My account value went down a little bit. Colgate went down a little bit. I still use it. I still think it's a great brand. It still makes my teeth clean. I'm still going to buy it no matter what happens in my
2: life. It's the understanding of the fact that it's still something that's useful. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. It's still something useful. It's still something that's great. And actually, if you went to the store and they said, buy two, get one free, you would probably do that, right? Sure. You wouldn't be like, oh God, there's something wrong with the Colgate. It's on sale. We are switching. I'm no longer buying Colgate. I'm going to be switching to Tobbs. There's something wrong with it because they marked it on sale. You'd be like, oh, great. I'm going to buy extra Colgate. Sure. When we go to the store and buy something like toothpaste or laundry detergent, or even clothing, right? Like if you have a favorite white t-shirt and it goes on sale, you're like, oh, buy two now because that's a good price. The mindset for investing is usually the opposite for whatever reason is when it goes down, people say, oh my gosh, I don't want to own this anymore. I need to get rid of it rather than being like, oh wait, it just went on sale. Let me get some more of it because this is a good product, good service or whatever it is you're invested in. Now that it's on sale I'll get more. When we go to the grocery store or the retail store, when it goes on sale, we're like, great, I'm going to buy extra because it's discounted. And this is a good deal. And no one really thinks about the stock market like that.
2: Yeah. And I've read articles here and there saying like, well, the market's down. It's essentially like buying something that's on sale. I got into the situation that I'm in. I'm like, oh man, maybe I should really like start taking this seriously now that I have the funds to do it. Maybe I'm right in a position where like a downish market could work very well for me.
0: Yeah, it definitely can. And I think the key to being an investor is realizing that it's a long-term investment, just like your house, right? So if you went on Zillow every day, your house value goes up every day, right? Zillow will tell you went up, it went down. When it goes down, you don't think, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? It went down $1,000 today. It's a long-term investment. It doesn't matter if it goes up and down one week or the next week, because you're there for ideally, right, 15, 20, 30 years. It's a long-term investment for most people. That's the same attitude you should have with investing, which is this is a long-term investment. So the day-to-day shouldn't really give me anxiety. I'm playing the long game, so it's okay if it goes up and down. And when it goes down, I'm going to look at those as opportunities versus I'm going to get out. A lot of people say when it goes down, like, I don't want to lose money, so I'm going to get out and go in the bank. Well, the bank is only going to get you so far in life when you have a long-term horizon, right? Especially for us with our age, for like the last 10 years, the bank paid nothing. So if you had your money in the bank, it made nothing. Right. Now, granted, last year was a terrible year in the market, but overall, if you had been in the market for 10 years and you only had the one down year, you're still way ahead of somebody who was in the bank.
2: Sure. Yeah. I want to get out of that like kind of like hoarding money, just like in a stagnant savings account kind of attitude. you're in the right spot and it my recommendation
0: would be just make sure that you own good things something that you understand what you own so that you're comfortable with the fluctuations because it will always go up and down and that you have to have the mindset that I'm a long-term investor and when things go on sale I might actually add to the account
2: you'll just get more comfortable with it as you
0: you're in it longer
2: okay yeah I mean I understand that that's not something that I have to like obsessively check every day. It's just something that I would have to train my brain to kind of like maybe look at once a month or every couple months or something like that. And just understand that it's a good thing overall.
0: Yep. And so I think your decision is going to come down to whether you want to, and you could like also split the difference. Sometimes when people don't know what to do, I'm just like compromised with yourself. So you could add the Roth inside of your 401k and add money to that. And you could also just split it up or you could just do a non-retirement account outside. Now, Your hobby is um, you own a horse. And so the reason I might lean towards doing it as a non-retirement account and getting that value up significantly is a lot of people don't know this, but you can borrow against an investment account. Okay. Just like you can borrow against your house. I don't know a lot about the horse industry, but my gut instinct would say it might be valuable to you to have an investment account that when you grow it to a certain amount that you could borrow against it. Should you need to borrow to like put a down payment on a new horse or I don't know. You have another option to lend against besides your house. You would have an investment if you grow that up to a hundred thousand hundred and you know, let's say in 10 years it's two hundred thousand, you can borrow against that investment
2: account. Without putting the house potentially in jeopardy. Sure.
0: Correct. So that would be so since you're in the house with your your partner, if you grow your investment account on your own, which you could very easily get that up in 10 years to 200000 with no problem, you can borrow against an investment account just like you can another asset.
2: Okay. And I know you can borrow against your 401k too, but I feel like that's a little bit more risky because like, you know, I might not be at this job forever.
0: Yeah, that you nailed it. So you can only borrow against the 401k when you're employed with that 401k provider. And they immediately take the loan out of those paychecks and if should you lose your job, that becomes a due immediately. Right. So I don't like borrowing against the 401k when you own your own investment account. We'll just say in theory in your 40s it's up to $200,000 cuz you very well could do that. You could borrow usually up to 50% of the value, but even if we just estimate, I don't usually like to go up to the full limit of what you can borrow just in case of market fluctuations, but let's say you have 200,000 and you can borrow to be comfortable 40%, you could borrow up to 80,000 on that. Okay. So that's a huge number. So if you want to build in the most optionality for your lifestyle down the road, I think maybe do that because that money then would be
2: hundred percent yours. And so that would be just your loan for 80,000. Okay. So outside of the 401k match that I'm getting right now, like I should probably at least still put 5% in that to keep getting the free money. But other than that, there's no downside of doing a non-retirement investment account as far as like, even if I don't want to borrow against it, it's still kind of growing. It's still in the market. There's really no downside to that. Versus a 401k.
0: So the biggest difference with the 401k and the non-retirement is the 401k is going to pay zero taxes. So there's no taxes on it until you take a distribution. The difference with the investment account is you, if they call tax track, you're going to pay taxes on that account every year if it earns money. Okay. So that's the big difference. But like, let's say you want in 10 years, you want to get another
2: horse. Do you have to put like a down payment on the horse? It's typically something that you just buy with cash. Okay. I mean, you could potentially, I would imagine, take out a private loan, but- I don't think that's something that I would go for because you're buying like a living animal. Right. My horse is insured at the value at which I paid for her. You know, hopefully it never comes to that. Right. No, definitely. Yeah. Or at least not for a very long time.
0: (laughs) If your goal was just retirement, I would say maybe lean more heavily into the retirement. But I think that if your goal is to have more flexibility with some of your lifestyle goals, I think the non-retirement will provide you more optionality. You can borrow against it. You
2: can take it out. Yeah. That feels that feels good to me especially like in the realm of taking full advantage of an investment mindset at the same time if my expenses stay low if i'm not you know looking at potentially getting another horse for at least another like 15 or so years it feels like i could maybe look into something like maybe bumping down my job maybe going part time something like that potentially i just feel like you know, I'm not going to have any dependents, most likely, like I'm not worried about, you know, children aren't, in my future, I'm not looking at funding like a 529 or a college fund. It's just sort of like, I don't see my expenses growing significantly in the conceivable future.
0: And this is really where it's going to come down to personal preference to make sure that the way you're saving is serving what your ultimate lifestyle goals are. So with your current 401k, you're doing about 9,000 a year between yourself and your company match. You know, And then let's say we did another 2,000 in investment account. You could even say, I'm going to bump another 1,000 into retirement, only do 1,000 into the non-retirement. That's really going to be your personal preference because there's pros and cons to all the different types of accounts, right? Roth versus traditional versus non non-retirement. Ultimately, I think if you want to have access to the money to be able to pull from it before retirement, I think the non-retirement will be advantageous. I also think if you should you need a loan in the future in 15 years, that non-retirement account will allow you to borrow against it. So I think those are two factors that would lean me towards doing more in the non-retirement. And here's the great thing about this. You could do that for a year and say, "You know what? Actually, I'd rather up my retirement and you can just switch. It's, you're not like locked into anything. You can always reevaluate this every year, as you probably should, and say, okay, I'm going to actually put money in a Roth. I'm going to add that to the plan and I'm going to dial back on the non-retirement.
2: Yeah. So then I don't, I don't have all my eggs in like, the basket of a 401k that isn't as accessible. Correct.
0: Right now, it's a great place to be because you're getting the match. And I think that makes total sense. Okay the non-retirement will be particularly interesting for you just because of your goals of maybe doing fire and with the horse, it's expensive. And if you want it to get another horse in 10 or 15 years, you might want to have that loan availability for you. So you could pay cash, right. And then pay, pay it back over time. Yeah. And with your, with your low expenses, here's what I would say with the retirement, I would almost always continue doing retirement every year. So even if you do some sort of fire where you take, I think you said
2: barista is that what you said? Yeah. So I, I do like the idea of working at least part-time. I just feel like, Mm -hmm. you know, I need to like be out there working, doing something. But if that isn't 40 hours a week, that would be a pretty sweet deal in my mind.
0: Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because these past few months I've been prioritizing my health as I've recovered from a nasty case of long-haul COVID. I love that it takes the mental work out of getting my vitamins and supplements in because with just one scoop of AG1, you're getting 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced ingredients, and probiotics. It's been super simple to incorporate into my morning routine because there's virtually no prep required and it tastes great. Plus, it's way cheaper than a fancy coffee habit. If you want to give it a try, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free 1-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and Five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash future rich. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash future rich to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Yeah, I think we we'll definitely get up the non retirement. I think that'll give you a lot of optionality. And I think that no matter what you still always want to be putting something towards retirement. You know, you're doing 11% with the, the match. And then you just have to always pl- you play with the numbers um, cuz here's what I always say about the FIRE. I think that you need to plan for that time frame but not jeopardize the permanent retirement. Does that make sense?
2: Yes, 100%.
0: Okay. So like whatever is so let's say at 45, you say, "Okay, I'm done with corporate life. I'm going to get a fun job to cover my 1400 a month." And at that time, let's just say in 10 years out, you have your retirement is up to 200000 and your non-retirement is up to 200000 The barista job will support your monthly income. So you if you have an emergency, you have an emergency fund, maybe you'll pull a little from the non-retirement, but generally everything's going to stay the same. So you're not jeopardizing permanent retirement. Yes. And then you did ask what my opinion of Social Security is. I did. I really hope it's there. It's a very fascinating system. I really think the Social Security program is a fascinating program. Um, it has a lot of great features in it. It's, it's more complex than just retirement. The main purposes that it served when it was created uh, back in the 30s was to take care of minor children and widows because back then there were orphanages. Okay. So people don't remember that. I mean, I obviously wasn't alive at that time, but like my uncle came from an orphanage. He used to just follow my grandfather home from school, but he lived in the orphanage and went to school with my grandfather. And he would just come home all the time with my grandfather, you know, to go to a house and have like a family dinner. And so my great grandparents adopted him. But that was common back then that people went to orphanages if a female wife lost her husband she might not be able to afford all the kids right and so sometimes the kids would end up in orphanages one of the main features of social security was this widow and minor child benefit but when they proposed it they proposed it really as a retirement benefit but one of the big things that social security uh, was doing the Social security system was doing was providing benefits for minor children and widows so that we didn't have people going to orphanages Um, Which obviously it solved that problem because there's no, I, I haven't seen an orphanage in any town that I've been to recently. And you probably have never had seen an orphanage, right? I have never come across one, no. Yeah, but it was, it was a thing back then. There was orphanages and that's where they would send children. Like my uncle, his brothers, when His dad passed, the um, older brother was sent to an orphanage because she couldn't take care of all the kids and feed all the kids. It was a thing back then. And so the social security system, one of the main features was to pay for survivor benefits and minor children benefits, but it was sold as a retirement benefit. And that was a great feature of it. And the purpose of that feature was to get the older generation out of the workforce to allow for the younger generation to have jobs. So obviously back then, people didn't quote unquote retire because- why would you retire and then live in poverty? You would just keep, you just work till you die. And that's really was the attitude. Like my grandfather immigrated to this country from Ireland. And so he didn't know what retirement was. You didn't retire, you worked and then you died. There was no retirement that he knew of. That was the generation they were trying to get out of the workforce. And so when they created social security, it was meant to be collected at age 65. And the life expectancy of a male at that time was 63. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was really meant to help like, minor children and widows and and disabled people. There's like a bunch of other benefits inside of social security besides the retirement benefit. But the retirement benefit was like, we're going to give you some money so you get out of the workforce. So we allow younger people into the workforce, right? So there's more jobs for them. But the intention wasn't to pay you a retirement benefit for 30 years they ran the life expectancy and they're like, okay, life expectancy of a male is 63. So you'll get paid at 65. So not everyone's going to get it. And I forget what the life expectancy was for women then. But now they're running into problems, obviously, right? If that was the intention that most people wouldn't collect, right? Because of life expectancy. Now life expectancy for a female like the actuarial tables is like 80 something, mental a bit younger. But we know a lot of people like you probably know someone who's in their 90s. I know people who are in their 90s. I mean, I've met people who are 100. If you collect a 65 and you live to 100, the system wasn't set up for that, right? That's not how it was planned for. So I do think that they're going to have to continue to make some adjustments to the system to account for longer life expectancy. So a couple of things that they're already doing, and I think it's going to continue to happen, is they push back the collection age. Full retirement was 65, right? That's what it started out. That's when you collected your 100% benefit. Now it's not 65. If you collected 65, that's considered an early collection, depending on your year of birth. But for us, that would be considered an early collection. And so you don't get 100% of what you've paid into the system, 100% of your accrued benefit. So I really think, and this is just, I mean, we're like basically 30 years out. So who knows if I'm right, because 30 years is a lot. I think our age to collect is going to be in our 70s. Okay. Where you get your full benefit. And I think that makes sense because if you live, let's say in 30 years, the average life expectancy for a female is 92 If you collect at seventy two, then you would get a benefit for twenty years and I think that's probably where it will fall. You'll probably still be eligible to collect social security earlier than that age, but it would be at a
2: reduced amount. Okay. Like I wanna keep it in the back of my head, but I don't wanna be like, you know, sitting back like taking it easy, like, oh, I'll get social security too. I have to take that into consideration. Like I don't wanna
0: Plan yeah, you don't wanna like be
2: foolish and be like, Oh, this will bridge a gap. yeah, Yeah,
0: I agree with you. I think you should plan to cover yourself and social security will be like ideally still be there. And the reason why I think it'll still be there is currently with today, I forget what the exact percentage is, but the majority of senior citizens is the single largest source of income. Meaning if they took it away or it didn't work, we'd have a lot of senior citizens living in poverty, Right, which means if they're not on social security, they then would then go on a different entitlement system, right? It's not like at 80 if you lose your social security benefit and that's what you're living on and it goes away, what are you going to do? You would just apply for a different entitlement system. So I don't think that they're going to be able to get rid of it. I think they're going to have to continue to fix it. And there's a few ways they can fix it. And one of them is rolling back the age of collection. Another way is increasing the taxation on it. Right now, only 85% of it's taxable, depending on your income levels, maybe 50% of it's taxable. So maybe 100% of it will be, I will tell you when people find out when they retire that they have to pay tax on social security, they like lose their minds. But you do pay tax on it. And then the other thing is they can increase the wage base. So like right now, if you have a really, really high income, you don't pay into social security, it's capped at a certain wage. So it's like another way. So there's a few ways they can fix it and it'll fix the system or help fix the system. So I think you'll probably get it. I'm planning on getting something, but I wouldn't, I agree with you. Like I wouldn't plan on it being like the fix it all. Like, uh, Oh, I won't worry about that amount of money because social security will handle it. Right. It's like, Great. Like if it comes in great, you have an extra thousand, fifteen hundred a month, but, and you will pay tax on it. So keep that in mind, but I still think it's a great system. And I'm really hoping that it's around and they fix it and that it'll be a supplement to your retirement. It should not be a hundred percent of what you're living on.
2: Yeah. And it's not something that I'm thinking about, like, oh, I'm going to turn 65 and cash it in. That's, it's it's like something that, you know, if anything, I think about like, oh, when I'm in my seventies or something like that, then totally I might take advantage of it when I'm eligible to get the 100% payout of what whatever is going to be eventually coming to me. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think it's a fascinating system, and I really hope that there's like a few like increasing the taxation so it's taxed at 100%. If if you're in that income threshold, if you're not, they don't tax it as much. Increasing the wage base, I think, would definitely help. That that's like a very politically charged statement, but I do think that it's a great system and I think they should keep it. And I, and rolling back the ages, I think that's going to happen anyway. I tried to, I went on their website to be honest, cause I was like, I wonder what age it's going to be now. And they don't even like extrapolate it as far as our generation. Oh, okay. Yeah. So like you can, if, if you go on, like you're so you create it's SSA.gov. You can create an account, anyone who's paying it taxes, you have an account with them already. You can set up your account. So I went in just to see what my estimated amount was. But I know that age is not correct. Because that age is like the same age as somebody retiring this year. So like, I know that's not right. They just haven't extrapolated it out to our generation. So yes, I think that's like in your 70s, ideally there's something there. I would never plan on it being, I think it should always be like gravy, like an extra 20%, but it should not be your, your major income source. It's not a comfortable retirement if it is, even if you were collecting today. Um, and then your other question is long-term care insurance,
2: or do you mean life insurance? Well, so I don't necessarily mean life insurance, and I'm not sure if this is, like, necessarily – I'm not sure how much of this question is in the like financial planning realm. I mean, it is because I'd be paying for it, you know, because I don't plan on having any dependents. I don't plan on having kids. My boyfriend has his own financial scenario going on that he's responsible with. So it's just sort of instead of paying for life insurance, should I pay for something else more focused on myself? Because, you know, again, I'm not necessarily concerned with leaving any kind of um, inheritance to anyone or like, I'm not concerned about like, Oh, if I die, I want to, you know, give somebody a lump sum to live on or something like that.
0: Got it. So the only thing I would say is the house is in both of your names. Should you predecease your boyfriend, could he still afford the house on his own? Yes, 100%. Okay. My personal take is you don't need life insurance then. As long as he doesn't lose the house, if anything happens to you. And you could, I mean, he would have the emergency fund. You could leave him all the assets if you wanted to. That's your choice. You don't really have any financial obligation to anybody. Okay. I personally don't think you need life insurance. If you said I have a sister or a brother or a niece or a nephew or something that I want to make sure I help with college, but no, if you don't have anybody that you're planning to leave anything to, and you're comfortable that if anything should happen, your boyfriend could cover the mortgage, even if he couldn't, that's also personal preference. Like, you know, you could be like, yep, he's on his own. That's right. You have the house, you can do what you want. And then long term care insurance is nursing home insurance, like to cover a long term care event, should you need um, at home care or skilled nursing care. So, if you were to go into a facility, usually I see people purchasing that type of insurance, like in their 50s, and only if it's offered through work. It's gotten to be quite expensive. Nursing homes are incredibly expensive. And so, the insurance for them, the premiums have gotten outrageous. If you don't have anyone that you want to leave, anything too should you need long-term care like should you end up in a nursing home you would just spend all of your money right it would just all go to towards your care what I do think might be interesting and I don't think it would be long-term would be disability you're more likely to be disabled okay and I very rarely recommend this but I think given your goals and you have the income to support it is I would look at work to see if they have short-term or long-term disability okay Especially given your hobby, like if you got in a horsing accident or something happened and you couldn't work for a year or a year and a half, that would impact your finances pretty significantly.
2: Right. Sure. Yeah. And like, I don't mean to like be a bummer, like thinking about these kind of like very not ideal situations and how I would pay for them. But it's just I'm at this point now. What ways are the smartest to spend my money to take care of myself, essentially?
0: Yeah, I would look and I, the best way to get insurance usually is through your company because you're getting it as a group. And so there's tend to be better pricing because it, it's a group, right? And they also sometimes don't ask as many questions because they're, they know they're going to get a bad risk, essentially. Like the way to describe it is my mother is like the worst risk, like as an insurance company, you don't want my mother, my mother's had millions and millions and millions of dollars of medical care. But She worked for a government agency. And so when they came in to offer insurance to the government agency, they know that if they get 1,000 people, one of those people will be a terrible risk and somebody they would have never sold insurance to. But they're willing to get that one bad person to get the 999 good insurance people, right? Because it's a business. So the only way my mother ever got anything was through government because- They would offer insurance to all the employees. There would be no health questions because if they asked her any health questions, they'd be like, woman, we're not insuring you. (laughs) We're going to lose our shirt on you. Okay. Getting it through work is usually your best option
2: because they're going to have better pricing and there's going to be less questions. Okay. And then like thinking about that, as far as like projecting into a potential fire scenario, it would just be within my best interest then to look for a part-time job that also Offered some sort of insurance. Exactly. Yeah,
0: you would want a part time job that offered some sort of benefits so that you had health insurance coverage, right? Ideally, some sort of retirement if you could find that. But I would definitely look, especially with your hobby where you could get injured or hurt, I would definitely look at disability. I think that would be more of a priority than long term care. Long term care means that you can't perform two of the six activities of daily living, which, not to say it can't happen, not to say you can't end up in a nursing home facility when you're young. I think uh, short-term or long-term
2: disability is much more likely than a long-term care event. Okay. Yeah, and, like, I'm I'm not necessarily thinking about long-term in the sense of, like, oh, well, what if this happens when I'm, like, 40 or something? I just mean when I am super old for, like, a couple of years or whatever. But if that's not something that's really on the horizon right now, like, if that's not something that I need to be concerning myself with at 34, then, you know, I'm willing to kind of, like, let that go and prioritize something else for at least a couple decades.
0: Yes. I think statistically you're more likely to have a disability or get hurt where you couldn't physically work than you are to have a long-term care event. And so I think you'd be better off looking for disability insurance. And I would do it through work to see if they offer a long-term or short-term and you supplement that, you would pay for it Okay. through work. It would come out of your payroll. Uh, I think that is more of a priority because my personal opinion is I think the long-term care insurance is going to change dramatically in the next 30 years. Okay. Given the increase I haven't seen anyone your age buy it. And so I think you're better served doing the disability and then we'll
2: worry about long-term care when you get into your fifties. Okay. What in your opinion would those changes be? You think it would just get extremely expensive in the coming decades? Yeah. So
0: the nursing was already extremely expensive. And so then the premiums have gotten extremely expensive. So honestly, when I run numbers for it, we almost usually don't do it because it's so expensive to pay for it. And the traditional long-term care insurance is you pay for the insurance like homeowners. And then if you don't use it, you never get the money back. But it's significantly more expensive than homeowners insurance. Okay. A lot of people are not comfortable spending $10,000 a year for a policy they might never use. Ideally never use, right? Nobody wants to go to a nursing home. Sure. So those are pretty rich premiums. And I'm just coming up with a ballpark number, just to give an example. They are coming up with other policies that then now have a death benefit. So if you don't use the long-term care aspect of it, they'll pay a death benefit to a beneficiary. But once again, that's not going to be attractive to you because your goal is to not leave anything. Mm-hmm. I think the long-term care industry is going to need to change. For instance, a private room can go as much as 16000 a month in some states. Okay, That's absorbent. Right. I mean, that's really, and that's like after tax. So like if you had to earn money to pay for your private room in a nursing home facility, you had to make like 20, 22,000 a month to pay for that. So there's going to need to be something else out there because then the premiums are so expensive to buy the insurance. Nobody wants to buy the insurance because I'd rather just stay at home and get private healthcare, right. To come into my house and take care of me because I could do that for six grand a month. Okay. Yeah. I think the industry is like a little wonky right now. And so I think, the great thing is you're young. And so I wouldn't worry about that right now and just keep that as something to make sure you're taken care of. And it statistically, if you live an average life currently with today's
2: statistics, you'll be 88. So we have 50 years. Okay. And then in the meantime, that's almost an argument for like quote unquote self-insuring AKA bumping up my investments and all that other stuff. Exactly. You'd be better off because in that
0: way, you would just pay for someone to take care of you in your own home because you'd have the wherewithal because you'd have the financial ability to do so. And I think your bigger risk in the short term in the next 50 years is like getting hurt or getting sick where you're not able to support yourself because you're not able to work. I think that's the bigger risk. Okay. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. And then I think your last question was reverse mortgages.
2: Yeah. Like I've heard about that. I don't know if that's like, something that people use because like in the back of my head, you know, I want us to stay in our house. You know, we're not looking at like, oh, this is our starter home and then we're going to move and then we're going to do this and that. This is it. In my mind, our house is like our house for the like foreseeable future. So I don't know if there's any way to sort of leverage that in like a later in life retirement scenario.
0: I think you're accurate. So reverse mortgage for those listening who don't know, that is where you own your home outright and then
2: you basically
0: borrow against it you take equity out of it to live on it. It's called reverse mortgage. I do believe that in certain scenarios, it can make a lot of sense, especially for those, and you're describing yourself as what would be, I would consider an ideal candidate, for those who don't want to leave anything behind. So let's say your house, you said, is like worth 375 now. Houses have appreciated significantly, right, over the last 30 years. So For instance, my dad was able to buy a house, I think for like 16,000, he bought like a little bungalow. There's nowhere anywhere in this country, I think you can buy a house for 16,000. So let's just throw out a random number and just say it doubles. So your house is then worth 600,000 in 30 years, right? You're 65. Okay. That's a large value to have tied up in an asset, right? Yeah. And you don't want to leave it to anybody. Your goal is to not leave behind a ton of money. So in that situation, now you're 75 and you spent down more of your retirement and you're like, the market isn't performing the way we want, but we have our house is appreciated significantly, and there's all this value tied up in this tangible asset. I do think it would make sense to take some of it out. You wouldn't want to reverse mortgage the whole thing, but if you say, okay, the house is worth six hundred thousand, we're going to take two hundred thousand out, and so then when we pass away, the house is worth four hundred. That we'll send that to a charity or what have you. Or you could even do 300000 You wouldn't want to get into a position where you took out too much equity, right? And then you could be in a bad position. Okay. You would still want to have ownership of it. I would call it like the caboose of the plan. In the back of your mind, you take some equity out of the house in your 70s or 80s, depending on how your your life is at that time. Like if I need it, it's a legit option. It is a legit
2: option. Okay, awesome.
0: Yeah. I don't recommend it for a lot of people because you just don't want to overextend yourself, if that makes sense. So I would never recommend if your house is worth 600, I would make only do a percentage of that where you still owned a percentage of it.
2: Yes, that makes sense. And that feels good to like have that retained ownership to like have that control. Yeah, thank you.
0: Yeah, no, I definitely think it's an option. We don't see it. Like I sat down with thousands and thousands of people at this point in my life to go over their finances. We don't see it that often. It has to check certain boxes. And that would be typically it's for someone who is single, who wants to stay in their home. And and you know what happens a lot when people are older is they don't want the home anymore because of the maintenance. They don't want to have to take care of the grass. There's a lot of stuff that goes into a home. I tell you this all the time because I always say that I really believe in home ownership, but it has to be when you're ready for it, because it's a lot of work and can be a lot of expense. But so some people, when they get older, decide to get rid of the house. And so they sell the house and they rent an apartment or downsize to a a condo where they don't have to do so much maintenance. But for some people, they don't want to leave the house and they don't want to have to keep carrying the cost does that make sense because you're paying taxes and expenses and maintenance and so especially for those who don't want to leave anything behind but don't want to have the burden of carrying costs of the house the reverse mortgage can work because you take the equity out and the house supports itself right the equity you pulled out is covering the the insurance the maintenance and the taxes it's a neutral rather than an expense
2: right okay yeah and like the only thing about like maintaining a house like as i get older is like well okay, I might get someone to do you know, yard maintenance or something, but I would hope that that would be something that would pay for itself in the sense of like, I would have the money to do that at that point. I would you know, use a reverse mortgage to partially fund someone else doing the things that I'm doing now.
0: Yeah. And that's where it can make sense, right? Because as you get older, I mean, you could be like 85 out there shoveling the driveway, who knows, but you then let's say are paying for more of the things to keep the house maintained. And so then the house becomes more of an expense than it was because you're paying for more services for the house. And so that's especially where a reverse mortgage could help because now you've neutralized your housing costs in terms of maintenance, paying for people to help you do things, the taxes, because the taxes will most likely go up and the homeowner's insurance. And then maybe you take out a little extra to supplement your lifestyle. And that's fine because if the house is worth 600000 you don't have any intention of leaving that value to somebody.
2: Yeah, and then in this scenario, it's, it's just sort of a thing where it's like I want this to work for me to the extent that's smart to do. Exactly.
0: Yeah, and so if you took, let's say, the house is worth six hundred thousand, and you took out two fifty, there's still residual value. You know, you still own it, and you could leave that to a charity or, or or what have you. But then you're not leaving all of that. You know, you're letting it serve you versus leaving behind
2: that entire value. Okay. Yeah, that's really awesome. That feels good. And I never really like thought about it in terms of like a partial percentage.
0: Yeah, that's always my recommendation is a partial percentage because you want to, re- in my personal opinion, you want to retain control of it. Yeah, totally. And you could always do more. I mean, we'd have to see where the rules are with reverse, you know, there's rules around reverse mortgages, just like there are with mortgages. So you just want to see where it is. But my thought would be the house will most likely appreciate over the next 30 years. And so you could take a, a good percentage out and then neutralize that housing cost, right? At minimum, neutralize the housing cost, if not contribute to your
2: your budget as well. Okay. Yeah, awesome. Um, the only other question that I really had was I, I'm looking into picking up some consulting work on the side. Oh, right. I don't know yet. I haven't kind of like fleshed out that entire possibility, but there is a potential of it being like pretty lucrative. Like I wouldn't want to let go of like a W-2 job that gives me insurance and all that stuff, but right. there's a potential that it could be pretty lucrative in terms of like investment accounts, retirement 401k Roth versus a non-retirement investment account you know, if I'm generating a bunch more extra income, how would that change my, like, order of duration? Yeah, that's a great question. Would I fully fund the 401k because I have extra put into a non-retirement account? Like, what would be the smartest kind of, like, utilization of? Can you give me a ballpark of what you think it would, what you might make, the like a range? Yeah, um, so it could maybe be another 40k. It might even match my full-time job salary because I'd be able to, you know, make more on, like, a, on a consultant, Hourly basis. So here's what I would do. I would, and you're doing it as a consultant,
0: so you could set up an LLC and I, and I, you'd have to check with an accountant. I don't know if you actually need an LLC, but you could set up what's called a SEP, an SEP. Gosh, I always get the acronym wrong. I believe it's a simplified employer pension. Yeah, simplified employee pension. It's ideally, it works best when there's just one person, like when you're a consultant. And so you can dump, like, usually around in this, you have to check with your accountant, usually, you can do about 25% of your self employment income into that. Okay. I still like the idea of doing the non-retirement account, but I would do the SEP for a portion of it. And then with the difference, I would add the Roth inside of your 401k at work. Okay. I basically spent all of that money you just made, but (laughs) that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) you would like bump up your savings ratio so much. So uh, the SEP would be great. So you set that up outside. That would be for your consulting work only. You're definitely going to need, I would definitely recommend having an accountant help you with this. Okay. The limit on the SEP contribution, for last year i believe it was 61,000 so you can put a lot of money into a sep so let's just say you could probably do about 10,000 into the sep right and that would be pre-tax the sep is not a roth option and then what i would do would increase your 401k amount i would definitely add the roth cuz you're going to have enough cash to do it max that out so that you're doing the full irs limit in your 401k at work i would then do the step and then the non-retirement and then you literally get everything you'll have pre-tax Roth and non-retirement okay i hope you get that contract that would like move the needle significantly for you
2: yeah like i'm excited about it it's a possibility i'm not trying to count my chickens early but <laughs> yeah i'm excited about it i would do the step because that'll reduce the taxable income
0: um and let you put a huge a big chunk Like i think it's usually 25 percent of your self-employment uh, income and then in the 401k I would add a Roth so that you're getting that as well whether you do 5000 or 6000 to your choice and then the remainder of that would be all pre-tax. You can choose how you want to divvy it up but I would I would hit the IRS limit in that.
2: Gotcha. Okay, makes sense.
0: And then still do your non-retirement and then you're if you do that for a couple of years you'll really ramp up your retirement and you'll still have money probably left over as well. You'll pay a bit a bit in tax but that's why I would ramp up the 401k and do the SEP.
2: So that I'm kind of saving the tax on my W2. Because I'd be getting this extra.
0: Because you're getting the extra. So I do like the idea of still sneaking in a Roth. So you just figure out you could, and that's where the accountant will be critical. So I would sit down with the accountant and say, okay, if I do this up for 10,000 and then I up my 401k contribution, so I'm doing 15,000 pre-tax and 5,000 in Roth, where do I fall tax-wise? And I would let the accountant tell you like, can you do 6,000 in the Roth and the 401k and get away with 14,000 pre-tax or... Like, where are you falling in your income brackets, right? Because that's about how much you keep. And so I would let the accountant drive how much you're going to do raw for pre-tax in the 401k with the set, because they can just plug that into a system and say, okay, if you increase the 401k by $1,000, you'll save 1000 in tax, right? Or 2000 in tax. So I would let them drive the
2: percentage breakdown. Okay. Because they'd be able to tell me exactly like what my tax benefits are and Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. And
0: I, I'm just ballparking, but I don't do your tax return. And so that's why I would sit down and pay the, it's worth paying the accountant for this and just say, okay, in my 401k, I have the choice to do Roth and pre-tax. How much would you do? Like, where's my best scenario for the pre-tax versus I want to do a little bit in Roth. So like, what's that breakdown? Like, is it 4,000 Roth and 16,000? And I would ask them to run the numbers on it and see where your tax liability is based on those differences.
2: Okay, yeah, and that'll be helpful once it gets a little more, like, quote, unquote, complicated, because I, right now, I just do all my taxes by myself, so I don't have that relationship with an accountant at this point. Yeah, and I
0: think it'll be worth it once you do consulting, because you're going to want to do the SEP, and then I would want to, like, run this scenario on what's my tax liability, and, and, you know, maybe the accountant says, you know what, because of this consulting gig, you really should do all of it pre-tax, because the savings is worth it. Okay. That's where I would, I would lean on the, on accountant. Okay, sounds good. We went through so many things today, Nora. We went through <laughs> life insurance, disability insurance, long-term care insurance, social security, reverse mortgages, and investing.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for all of this, because I, I feel like I'm at that point where I'm just like, there's so many options that are open versus just paying off debts. It's like, oh my God, what direction do I go? And it's sort of like everything feels more complicated, but also exciting at the same time. So yeah, I really appreciate all of your advice.
0: Yeah, absolutely. This was a good episode. We went through a lot of stuff, but yeah, no, you're in a great spot. I think the consulting gig if that, I agree. You don't want to like count your tickets before they patch, but I think that could be a great way to just really ramp up your savings in a, even if you did it for one or two years. And that will just help you get a little bit closer to the fire. So I would lean on the accountant to figure out where your biggest bang for your buck is from a tax standpoint. And if you can sneak in a Roth inside of your current 401k, I would do that. Because you'll get some pre tax with the SEP as well as the, your current contribution to a 401k. And then I think the non retirement savings account will be valuable for you long term, given your hobbies and your desire for fire. Thank you for coming on. For all of our lovely listeners, you can follow us for our most up to date information on Instagram. Our handle is Future Rich Podcast.